Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. Thanks, sir. So we're continuing our series in the book of Job, and today we're looking at Job chapter 4, which is uh, often called the, the first speech of Eliphaz. And it's, it's basically some advice that jo- um, Eliphaz is giving to Job in the midst of his crisis, but as you'll see, it turns out to be really bad advice. I don't know if you've ever had bad advice from a, a friend or not before, uh, but I had some bad advice regarding a Bunsen burner. Now, I don't know if they still have Bunsen burners in schools or not. Uh, they do. Uh, they, they really are the, the cutting edge of risk and teenage delinquency. Uh, and we, we, we had a lot of uh, fun with Bunsen burners in, in Year 9 Science, Mr Wainwright's class. We, we burnt just about anything we could get our hands on all in the name of science, of course, uh, just trying to find out what it smelt like and, and what could happen. But uh, we, we got to the point where we'd sort of burned everything we could and, and my friend said to me, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we took the Bunsen burner off the tap and lit the tap? Uh, and I thought, that's in the name of science. Uh, I, I wondered what was going to happen. So when Mr Wainwright turned his back, I pulled the hose off, lit the one. And it was a sheet of flame, basically, that went across the classroom. Uh, students diving left, right and centre. Fortunately, nobody caught fire, but it wasn't your thing. And, and once the chaos sort of reserved itself, I was sent to the principal's office. And I don't know if it was the, the chaos and the calamity or what, but he sort of forgot about me. So I stood outside the principal's office a couple of hours and eventually wandered back to classes and got off scot-free. And something about judgment in that as well. Um, Lenny and I also had some... Take, don't take financial advice from a friend. Is, uh, I'm sure uh, David would assert that. So, well, don't uh, take advice. In 1987, Lynette and I were living in Cobar, a place in western New South Wales. It was a mining town. And Lynette was working for a drilling company. And one of the guys came to her and said, listen, there's a company about to go uh, to float to start selling shares called Homestake Gold. And I've been prospecting, uh, I've been surveying the, the, the land that they're, they're going to be mining in and there's some gold there. It's going to be it's quite a rich vein. It looks very promising. So he says, if you can, buy some of this homestake stock when it comes on the market because it's just going to, it's going to take off. So, so we, we scraped together all of our meagre savings and got together, I think, $2,000 it was, and that bought us uh, shares at 20 uh, they, went, they, they went on at $2 each, the uh, homestake gold shares, so we bought 1,000 shares. Um, those of you with a bit of financial experience, when I mentioned the year 1987... Uh, you, you'll start to shake your head because in 1987 there was this thing called Black Monday which was the single worst day on the New York Stock Exchange in its entire history and the, uh, it lost a quarter of its value in one day and of course that flowed over to Australia. So our $2 shares uh, at the end of October ended up being valued at the grand total of 13 cents each and uh, they pretty well stayed there for the next decade. Uh, when we finally sold them off about uh, 10 years later, they'd reached the grand total of 40 cents each. Uh, and uh, we, we put it down to lesson in life. Don't take financial advice from a friend. But that's exactly what's happening to poor old Job here in, in chapters 4 to 37. So just to fill you in on the story so far, so Job is a, a righteous man and uh, in heaven there is a drama that plays out which means that Satan is released to do his worst to Job and Job is first struck by financial disaster 
uh, his, all his livestock and, and servants are killed. Then he's stuck, struck with personal disaster. All of his family uh, are killed. And then he's struck with a, a, a health disaster. He ends up getting an extremely painful physical ailment and he's in misery. And his wife leaves him. He's left there with his three friends who come. And for, for seven days, they, they just sit with him. And then after seven days, Job gets up, and as we saw last week, he, he basically vents. He, he just shares his despair, not just to what's happened to him physically, but he's lost a spiritual connection with God because of his suffering that he is, he is going, with, going through. And then basically from chapter 4 to verse 30, chapter 37, there's a series of three dialogues between Job's friends and Job. And, and they, they each take a turn to stand up and give advice to Job on, on what he should do, on explaining why this disaster has, has befallen them. And then each time Job responds. And I encourage you to, to perhaps read them through, but the, the, what we're going to look at today from, from Eliphaz's first speech is pretty representative of what they say throughout those 35 chapters. And, and it seems as though Eliphaz is a sort of a spokesman for Job's friends. He is the eldest, we, we know. He is also the one who speaks first at the beginning of each of the three cycles of speeches. Eliphaz is the one who speaks. And in chapter 42, when God says, I want to speak to your friends, Job, Eliphaz is the one who is called forward to listen to what God wants to say to Eliphaz's friends. And so this speech we're going to look at today, his, his first speech, is sort of representative of, of what Job's friends say to him in the next 35 chapters. And the first thing he says to Job basically is, suck it up. So if you've got your Bibles there, um, Job chapter 4. Then Eliphaz the Temanite. And Teman was a... a, a, a province known for wisdom and so it's again this is why Eliphaz is the first one to speak because he's perceived as being the wisest of the friends who are there with Job and he says in verse 2 if someone ventures a word with you will you be impatient now that's very polite it's a, it's a way of sort of saying to Job look can I squeeze a word in here without you getting angry and he says um but who can keep from speaking? Job, look, at this uh, This has just got to be spoken about. Verse 3. Think how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. But now trouble comes to you and you are discouraged. There's a bit of debate about how that word should be translated. It could be terrified. Uh, it sort of carries that the, the, the Job is overreacting or Job is, is being fearful and terrified. Even though he's had all this advice, this is what Eliphaz is saying, even though you've, you've had all this advice for other people, now something bad's happened to you, the wheels have dropped off and you're really losing it, Job. Verse 6, should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? Why are you carrying on like this, Job? Shouldn't you recognise that you've been, your piety, your goodness, should mean that you don't respond like this and that you, you somehow think that this is not going to last? Second thing that uh, 
Eliphaz says to Job is, in, in verse 7, you must have done something wrong. You must have done something wrong, Job. Verse 7, consider now, who, being innocent, has ever perished? Name me, a, name me a good person who has suffered the way that you are suffering, Job. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As you have observed, those who plough evil and those who sow trouble reap it. And the breath of God, at the breath of God they perish. At the blast of his anger they are no more. The lions may roar and growl, yet the teeth of the great lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. And so in other words, Job, Eliphaz is saying, Job, you must have done something wrong. And he gives him two metaphors to, as an example. If you sow trouble in your field, you, you reap um, sadness and, and, uh, you, and you perish. And a lion might go around terrorising people for a while, but eventually it gets punished and its teeth break and its, the cubs die of starvation. And he says this, that this is just, just a pattern in the world, Job, that I've that observed, and I'm sure you agree with this, that bad things happen to people who do bad things. And so, Job, what have you done to upset God so badly that he would punish you in the way that he has punished you today? But of course we know Eliphaz is wrong on both counts. As we, we saw last week, Job was entitled to lament and express his despair to, to, to God and to express his despair to his friends and even to express his despair to himself, to be honest with himself and saying, I'm just absolutely miserable after what has happened to me. And, and, and Eliphaz is simply wrong in saying, Job, you know, just... Keep, keep quiet, keep the lid on it, don't express it, be a good example to everybody, suck it up, move on in life and so on. So he's wrong in that but he's, he's also wrong in his second assertion and, and we can call it what he's saying there in that second section of the text is the doctrine of immediate divine retribution. The idea that God goes around immediately punishing people when they do bad things and that it's a it's an automatic and instant response you do something bad god's going to strike you dead the idea that the idea of you know thunderbolt and lightning if you if you curse god's name you're dead it's simply not true it's 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 uh, on a number of counts the, the the very book of job is making this point that bad things do happen to good people that it's not as simple as good people good things bad people bad things because job is the prime example he is the righteous man job 1 8 he is greatly righteous yet really bad things happen to job the, the second problem with the doctrine of immediate divine retribution is that the New Testament, and, and really it's there in the Old Testament as well, talks about a day of judgment at the end. And the judgment will not fully happen until the end of time. And in Hebrews 9, it says, humans are destined to die once and then face judgment. 
that's the way things work. The idea that, that God is roaming around, striking people down as they do sin by sin is simply not what we observe in the world or in theology. But the other big mistake, the other fault underlying this idea of immediate divine retribution is that there's no distinction between good and bad people. We'd like to think that was the case. We'd like to be able to sort of draw a line between, oh, they're bad people, you know, Hitler, Putin, Xi Jinping, they're bad people, and then over here there's these good people, and usually, surprise, surprise, I'm over on this side of the line, by the way, in case you're wondering, but, but we'd like to think that we can sort of divide the people of the world up into to good and bad people. But it's simply not the way it works. And Jesus deals with this in an incredibly important passage in the Gospels. He, he deals with this misunderstanding very clearly in Luke 13. So the, the, the people of Jesus' day did subscribe to the theory of, or the doctrine of divine retribution. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's illustrated by the story in John where Jesus and his disciples are walking along the road and they see a blind man. And do you remember the question they ask? Who has sinned, this man or his parents, that he be born blind? Now, Jesus' answer to that question is, a, is another sermon in itself. But what it is illustrating is the doctrine of divine retribution. This guy is blind, he's suffering. Ah, oh, somebody must have done something wrong. And who is it, either him or his parents? And, and we see the same idea expressed in Luke 13. And uh, I can't remember if we preached on this when we went through Luke or not, but it's not often preached on this text, and it's because it's a, it's a little bit confronting. Luke 13. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered that way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. So something had happened which had really confused the, these people who, who came to Jesus. There were these Galileans and they were going to the temple to worship God. Now, you can't be better than that, can you? That's, that's the ultimate in goodness, to be going to the, to the temple to worship God. And now, but news has come to them that on the way to the temple, Pilate sends his soldiers and he kills these worshippers and there's so much blood that the blood gets mixed up, mixed up with the sacrifices they were carrying in their hands to offer to God at the temple. And this event just doesn't square with the theory or the doctrine of divine retribution because how could this bad thing happen to this good group of people? And Jesus' response is, you've got it all wrong. He says, do you think that they were any better or any worse than all of the rest of the Galileans? And the answer, implied answer is no, they're neither better nor worse. But he says, they need to repent and you need to repent and ask for forgiveness. All of you, all of the Galileans, 
All of you here are sinners in need of God's repent or needs of repentance and God's forgiveness. And Jesus uses another example which would have also caused uh, this consternation in their thinking. Apparently, there was this tower at Siloam, and there's this this freak accident that this tower falls down and kills 18 people. And, and the, 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 the doctrine of divine retribution says, well, those 18 people must have been pretty bad to be that unlucky. You know, obviously God struck them down. What, what did they do? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. They were no more sinful or no less sinful than all of you. And all of them, the ones who were struck by the tower and the ones who stood around asking questions afterwards, equally needed to find the repentance and forgiveness from God. Alexander Stolzeniskin um, picked up on this idea brilliantly and and he he writes about this in a couple of different ways. But uh, he, he said, Gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating the good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through the heart of every human being. The line of between good and evil is not between my group of people and that group of people. The line between good and evil runs right through the middle of my heart. I'm not good or bad. I'm just bad. I'm selfish. And if I think I'm good, I'm self-righteous as well. And stand before the judgment of God and need to repent and find forgiveness. So beware of the faulty conclusions that Eliphaz had because of his doctrine of divine retribution. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that blessing always comes to those who have been good. This plays out in the 21st century church in Australia Australia and across the world through a doctrine called the prosperity gospel, which says that if I give my money to God, he is like a bank machine that will return it to me with interest. And so the more money I give, the better off I'll get financially and I'll be blessed. And and it's always the case that that if you give God, he always gives it back. That is is a... uh, an outworking of this doctrine of divine retribution, that, that things just happen automatically and expected. But the, the other temptation is, is to think that when things are going well in our life, when we are being blessed, that somehow that's because we deserve it. You know, we've been good or we've been working hard and therefore God will automatically bless us. That's a reflection of the same faulty doctrine. The reality is if there is anything good in your life, it's not because you've you've been good or because you've done hard work. It's simply because of the grace of God. His undeserved goodwill towards us that means he gives us good things even though we don't deserve them in any way, shape or form. But the second faulty conclusion that Eliphaz has and, and that we tend to have as well is to think that suffering always comes to those who've done something bad. There's just this, this automatic connection. And, and what, 
tends to happen, this is manifest in that when we look at other people's suffering or when we're going through suffering ourselves, we start to think, I've done something wrong and God is punishing me. Certainly God does punish evil and he will, at the end of time, punish evil ultimately. But don't assume, like Eliphaz does, that because somebody is suffering, that God is punishing them. And certainly, 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 if you are going through suffering, don't assume that that's God's punishment for something you've done in your life. Instead, we need to frame the whole concept of the judgment of God within the doctrine of God's grace towards us. To recognise that, that God will judge the world, that he will punish the bad, he will bless the good, but he always does that within the framework of his grace towards us, which means he holds back his judgment, desperately waiting for us and desperately hoping that we will repent from our selfishness and our self-righteousness and come to him with repentance to receive forgiveness. And that is the, the reference around which we look at the whole world and, and recognise and thank God for his judgment, but thank him all the more for his grace. I think we should give the last word to the great theologian Clint Eastwood. Uh, in the movie Unforgiven, uh, he plays a character called Will Money, who's a, a wise and great, gritty old gunslinger. And uh, he and, and a young guy called Kid Schofield get paid some money to, to kill a, a cowboy who had assaulted a woman. And the, the two of them, they, they kill him. And then Kid Schofield, you can see sitting under the tree there, is just struck by guilt. And he's drinking away and says, that's the first man I've ever killed and it's a terrible thing. And, uh, I, I, and, and he sort of reconciles himself and Kids Cofield says, oh, but, but he, he had it coming, he had it coming. And, and Clint Eastwood says, we all got it coming, kid. We all got it coming. That's true. We've all got it coming. We, we all deserve to be punished. We all deserve God's judgment. But thankfully, in his grace, he holds it back and waits for us to, to repent and live a life of forgiveness and receive that forgiveness. And even if you've done that, the challenge then is to live every day of your life, looking at suffering through the lens of God's grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of grace. And that even though we have been selfish and uh, self-righteous, you're, you're still willing to, to offer us forgiveness if we, if we come to you in repentance. And so, Lord, we pray that we will live lives of repentance, that we will be constantly acknowledging our, our sin before you and our, our guilt and wallowing in your grace towards us. And, Lord, we do thank you that you have blessed us uh, in many ways. And that many of us can, can turn to you and, and be thankful for, for the great blessings you've poured out in our hearts, Lord. But, but please protect us from ever thinking that we've earned it. Or ever think that we deserve the good things that you, you bless us with, Lord. And equally, Lord, help us not to think when we see suffering in the world or when we, 
experience suffering in our lives to, to automatically or, or, or un uncarefully think that you're somehow striking us or striking that other person. Help us to realise, Lord, it's far more complex than that. That your world is, is dominated by your judgement, but also by this unfathomable, incomprehensible, inscrutable grace towards fallen humans. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.